Welcome to episode 89 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast for building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney, and today we're talking about the role of insurance companies in global combustible dust safety, and we're doing that with Kumar Rajasigaram, Fire Safety Risk Analytics Consultant with JTS Risk Engineering based out of Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Kumar has over 18 years experience, technical side, including risk assessment, hazard identification, and processing industries and has quite a bit of involvement with global insurance companies as well throughout Southeast Asia. So Kumar, I want to say a big thank you for coming on the Dust Safety Science Podcast and sharing your time with us today. Hi, uh, good mo- I guess good evening for you. It's morning over here. And again, thank you very much for, um, I guess, uh, giving me an opportunity to participate and contribute to uh, this initiative. I've been following your podcast for some time and I enjoy them. And uh, it's really helped me kind of, uh, I guess, improve my own awareness and knowledge uh, in, in the field of combustible dust. Well, I appreciate that. And I really look forward to this episode. I appreciate you coming on. Kumar reached out to me a few months ago to discuss incident data from feed mills. It was the industry that he was working with. We got talking back and forth and you mentioned some of the challenges in Southeastern Asia and within Malaysia with combustible dust that he was experiencing with his, his work in those industries. He mentioned some key things like difficulties in finding laboratories to do combustible dust testing. We ended up putting a post inside the Dust Safety Academy community there and found some testing labs with the member companies from Dust Safety Science throughout China and India and gave some resources there. But it really highlighted some of the challenges that we've had there. And we've had some of these previous podcast episodes globally. The last one was with Monica Remanazzo, episode 82, where we talked about challenges in combustible dust safety in Brazil. And with this discussion, I really want to get Kumar on to discuss and talk about what is he seeing in, in Southeast Asia and with his work in Malaysia. And one of the key drivers and key things we'll be talking about is the role of insurance companies and how they're driving change in combustible dust safety. So in this episode, we're going to talk about Kumar's backstory a bit, some of his background, um, his role today in industry how insurance companies became involved in combustible dust from his perspective, uh, how that focus has shifted over the years. And then we're going to get into what are some of these challenges in Malaysia and, and some of the other Southeastern Asian countries. So Kumar, maybe a, a good place to jump into the interview is just, can you give us some of your, your background related to industries handling combustible dust? Yeah, sure. I would say um, my experience with combustible dust uh, started about 15, 16 years back uh, when I was, uh, I guess, a newbie engineer with uh, FM Global. And at that time, I think so, uh, it was uh, post-2003, uh, there was, a, uh, I guess, loss at CTA Acoustics in the U.S. And uh, FM Global was uh, actually the um, uh, property insurer. FM was cited in, I guess, uh, uh, the uh, investigation uh, done by OSHA that, you know, there was no, uh, uh, I guess, recommendations related to combustible dust that could have prevented um, the explosion that happened in 2003 from happening. So um, FM uh, at that time rolled out training for pretty much all, all the uh, engineering staff uh, across across the globe uh, with regards to uh, combustible dust awareness and combustible dust protection and prevention and, and so on. So uh, that was, I guess, my first exposure or, or um, experience with, with combustible dust. Uh, prior to that, you know, um, uh, I never knew sugar was, was, was so dangerous. And I had worked with, with a, uh, another insurer before I joined FM. And um, 
during that those times, you know, uh, whenever we were we were doing uh, site surveys or um, risk assessments, uh, combustible dust weren't in our I guess uh, checklist or wasn't in in, in our um, I guess uh, thought process that it could contribute to something as as um, as severe as what happened in imperial sugar and so on. So uh, I guess it was about maybe 2004, 2005 when you know combustible dust. Uh, became something that it was, uh, I guess, prominent in my mind, at least uh, for me. That was um, the CTA acoustics incident. Is that correct? Yep. So yes, yeah, so that was. There was a report done by the U.S. Chemical Safety Board there, um, released in 2005, I believe. Um, and that incident was was quite large, quite severe. Um, there were, were seven individuals killed and, and 37 injured, and. You did mention that the, in the report they talked about the role of the insurer, and we'll get into this a bit, but maybe as knowledge transfer in terms of combustible dust safety. I do want to highlight that we've seen this with multiple incident reports where it's been identified that maybe a, you know, an insurance um, inspector has gone in before and not recognized or not identified or not passed on the information about some of these potential hazards. And then we find that out after we have an incident. So it, it's definitely not just FM Global that we've seen this happen with. Um, and I think we see it less today. I hope we see it less today than, than back in 2003. But it's interesting to have this as sort of the, um, you know, one of the things that have started this role of, of um, insurers in industries handling combustible dust. I guess before we get into that aspect of it, what is your, your role within industries today? What kind of um, industries are you working with and what sort of roles do you play there? Well, um, currently, I'm, I'm actually mostly involved uh, with clients that actually operate in the feed meal business. Uh, and that's where, you know, my, I guess, maybe renewed interest into the topic. So this this feed meals actually, they have certain level of uh, protection uh, installed, but um, they were, you know, when we do an insurance service, so I, I visit the clients on behalf of insurers. Uh, and sometimes on in on behalf of the client too, when they want to understand what risk are they exposed to, and we do a site risk assessment. And typically, insurance companies follow the same methodology, where we it's it's more like a what if approach. What if this doesn't work? What happens? What if the you know uh, vent panel was um, you know undersized? Uh, what happens? What if the dust collector was inside the building versus outside the building? So. We go through this what-if scenarios, and um, as part of those what-if scenarios, when I was at my client's uh, locations, I realized that um, there were incidents where the hazards were not identified, uh, or they may have been identified before, but because of a lack of uh, management of change, you know, uh, that exposure has now, I guess, revealed itself. So that's how, you know, I realized that, you know, there is a lack of um, understanding uh, amongst um, the general industry, at, at least in the feed meal segment, that you know dust uh, hazards is, is, a, is, a, uh, is a serious issue. And um, to, I guess, uh, help educate the client, uh, you know, uh, I use the NFPA standards and NFPA 61 was uh, one of the I guess key uh, standards that I was I was referring to, and I did highlight to them that you know we need to uh, probably have a dust uh, comprehensive dust hazard analysis uh, conducted to understand where these hazards 
are present and you know where what should be probably done to i guess uh, limit the um, potential exposure so uh, that's where you know i got into trying to get in touch with laboratories because you know to do a dust hazard analysis you need to know the properties of of the dust that you have and um, it's it's becoming quite frustrating because you know when you realize that um, you know there's not many laboratories out there and the cost of testing is actually quite prohibitive you know uh, when you tell the client you know he has, has to spend a couple of thousand us dollars on testing one uh, substance uh, and, and in a typical process in a feed meal process you have multiple substance uh, and you in fact you get mixtures of substance and as it goes through the process uh, you know the properties of of that dust also changes so um, you're not sending one sample out there you're sending probably multiple samples out there and that the cost of just doing a test kind of you know explodes so that kind of you know um, i guess is probably an obstacle obstacle currently in trying to get clients on board to you know conduct a, pro a proper comprehensive dust hazard analysis um, going forward well i found it really interesting that we came up with this when we were discussing it as well um, offline, but you mentioned NFPA 61, uh, that's the Agriculture and Food Processing Facilities um, guidance document. You mentioned dust hazard analysis. You mentioned testing laboratories, um, challenges there, um, identification, management change, um, lack of hazard awareness. I could be having the same discussion with you know somebody that's in the, the mid, a mid-eastern state like in Illinois or something, um, but you're on the other side of the world in Malaysia. So it was interesting to to see that you're applying these same procedures. And that was my first question to you when you, um, even even dust hazard analysis, we're having a hard time getting complete buy-in across the board here. <laughs> and and you're doing it in the other side of the country. So that was one of my first questions. And you mentioned that insurance companies are really one of the key drivers there. So I, I want to dive into that a bit. So you started with the CTA acoustics as being, at least for for the companies involved there, one of the leading drivers for for wanting to learn more about combustible safety and why these explosions happen we'll put a link for the chemical safety board report there in the show notes of this episode at dustsafetyscience.com slash 89 for the listener but how how did that focus change over the years so that was around 2003 time and now we're in 2020 um and in, at least in malaysia we're talking about these things like nfpa 61 and dust hazard analysis deadlines and that sort of thing can you kind of just work on closing that gap for us? How did we get to the point where insurance companies' focus have has shifted so much to to, to pushing combustible safety, which I think is a great thing? Yeah. Uh, well, um, so so to, the two thousand three incident was probably, at least in my mind, the starting point um, in, in in Southeast Asia when you know FM kind of um, propagated the awareness for combustible dust and other insurance companies kind of tagged along. In 2008, after the imperial sugar incident, uh, there's kind of a renewed interest in it. And uh, I guess the insurance committee kind of woke up that, you know, um, agri-dust and food-based dust were also a concern. And it was not only metal dust that was uh, a problem. Uh, so that, that was, I guess, my, I, I would say, the second wave of awareness that, that happened. And uh, in the last couple of years, uh, I think post 2015, when you know um, the requirements for dust hazard analysis got into the NFPA documents, uh, insurance companies have been 
using it, at least in my mind, as a tool to encourage clients to um, analyze the dust they have and do a comprehensive evaluation of what level of protection they have and, and so on and so forth. And it, it also, I guess, lifts the burden of, of um, hazard identification from the insurer uh, because, you know, if, if, if the client does a comprehensive dust hazard analysis, uh, then, you know, it, it's a document that can be easily readable, understood. And, and I guess if the client is serious to take action and execute on the recommendations. So it kind of, you know, made uh, it easier for uh, insurance consultants to uh, raise the awareness of dust hazard analysis requirement uh, so that the client would uh, hopefully comply versus uh, every individual engineer going out there and going through the what if analysis for every node or every equipment uh, every uh, segment of the process, because it, before the dust hazard analysis uh, requirement came into NFPA, insurance engineers who were out there were actually doing doing that what if scenario to uh, to to kind of appreciate uh, how big an exposure was was present. So uh, I think by the DHA requirements coming into NFPA, it kind of simplified the insurance community's role in ensuring that the hazards were identified. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And is there any other, keep using the word drivers, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but uh, what kind of, I guess, what kind of regulation engineering guidance is available in Malaysia? Is it mandated by law or legal repercussions, or is it really just the, you know, getting your, your facilities insured that's a driver here. Like, is there any sort of combustible dust regulation or standards that are available outside of NFPA and and uh, the insurance requirements? Actually, it's quite interesting because I've been trying to um, find if, you know, maybe I'm not aware of any regulation. So I was trying to kind of uh, uh, in, uh, dig further and you know, see if there's anything. And up to now, I haven't actually found any specific regulation in Malaysia that addresses it. In fact, you know, I spoke to some of my uh, peers um, in, in the um, occupational health and safety um, uh, consultancy and so on. Um, so, but I did find a document that was produced by the Department of Occupational Safety and Health in Malaysia. And uh, there's, there isn't a date on the document. Uh, it it kind of gives a summary of uh, about five or six dust-related uh, uh, incidents that have happened uh, in the last uh, 10, 12 years. Uh, it pretty much starts with, you know, talking about the imperial sugar loss and then, you know, it cites the losses that, you know, we have had within the country. Uh, and it, at the end of the document, it kind of refers to um, the NFPA guidelines, uh, it uh, refers to the ATAX guidelines, it refers to the um, Australian and uh, New Zealand guidelines. So in, in Malaysia, I feel it's, it's still very much at an infancy level. There is uh, awareness from the Department of uh, Occupational Health and Safety. I think by producing this document, they're kind of edit, trying to educate uh, uh, industry at large that you know this is a concern. But um, there, I haven't seen, I guess, um, hard and fast regulatory requirements to drive this, this um, awareness program or, or compliance program uh, or so on and so forth. In fact, you know, I, I can probably share this, this uh, document because it was a, I, I obtained it from the public domain. I can share the document that was produced by the 
Department of uh, uh, Occupational Health and Safety. And if you'd like to link it up on on, on the podcast, uh, that would be, I guess, maybe useful for someone from this from this, from Malaysia who, who watches it. I think that'd be very useful. Um, I did find a slide deck just while you're talking there that has um, says Diosh according to Diosh Malaysia. So that would be I assume Department of Occupational Safety and Health. I think that's maybe just referencing it. Yeah, if you could send me the original document, we'll include that in the show notes again at dustsafetyscience.com slash eighty nine. I mean that would be useful for someone in Malaysia, but really in any uh, really in any country, but in, in any of the southern southeastern countries. Uh, Southeast Asian countries, I think it would be interesting to see. And it might even be helpful for other countries that don't have that sort of documentation put together as a as a lead to how to start doing that as well. Because we do get that quite a bit where we have a large incident in a country that doesn't have any regulation, doesn't have any guidance, then they're looking for, for help. Uh, so having that as a resource is really good as well. And we had that actually happen in the country of Jordan with Ali Al-Najdawi um, back in episode 13 of the podcast, if you can believe that. So that was over a year and a half ago now where he was talking about in, they had a large loss incident in Jordan and uh, had a large explosion there. Um, I do have my window open and I think you can maybe hear a very large bird um, chirping away out there. Yeah, I wasn't sure if the bird was over here or was <laughs> over there. <laughs> this is live recording and that's how that uh, happens sometimes. So if that keeps up, if the bird doesn't go away, I will shut my window. But at the moment, we'll leave that in the recording. I think that'd be very helpful to share with the audience. And one question that came to mind, you kind of mentioned ATEX and New Zealand has set of guidelines along with um, Australia. It, it's interesting that NFPA is really the approach there in Malaysia. Is that mostly just because of this interaction with insurance companies where maybe other countries are adopting the ATEX guidelines in their, their regulatory framework? Do you think that's why that why ATEX isn't as commonly used there? Yeah, I think it's mostly driven by by insurance companies. And in, in, I mean, the big big insurance companies, at least in these regions, are like you know the AIGs, uh, the FM Globals, and so on. Uh, so uh, I guess when I started, I talked about the uh, CTA laws in 2003 and you know FM Globals initiatives and so on, and the Imperial Sugar laws. So the losses that we have that we've been hearing at least in this part of the world. We're very much uh, not American-centric. We were not, I mean, at least I haven't actually heard of any major uh, uh, loss lessons from, from the European side of, of, of things. So I guess because of that um, uh, initial awareness from, from the North American uh, incidents that led us to kind of focus on the NFPA guidelines versus the uh, ATEX guidelines. And also uh, in, in Malaysia, by itself is is that you don't have you know um, I guess their own standards that refer to this. So we are always looking uh, I guess outside for reference for um, guidelines uh, guidance and so on. So that's probably one of the I guess reasons why NFPA is, is uh, quite widely used or or, or referred to, uh, especially in, in the combustible uh, arena. Well, I, I think adding to that, it really highlights a couple of key things about the role groups like the U.S. Chemical Safety Board play in their educational documents, in their investigations, and in the report findings, and their suggestions and recommendations. I mean, the videos they do, it's not just affecting North America markets, it's affecting uh, markets all over the world. And then the same thing with the work the, the National Fire Protection Agency does 
is that um, those standards are then adopted by many other countries. Um, so it's not just it extends beyond the borders of of just North America and even the United States, which is uh, important to think about. And another factor that um, I might add is because of, uh, the influence on of multinational corporations. So you've got a lot of uh, North American companies that operate in this part of the world, and you know uh, because of the uh, I guess uh, uh, holding structure or, or, or parent company. Uh, relationship, uh, the American uh, like NFPA codes and all that uh, uh, seeps into, uh, I guess, our day-to-day uh, usage. Yeah, and I, I think that's a good segue into the challenges in the regions of the world that you work in. Um, you mentioned testing as, as one of them, access to laboratories. Um, if you don't have one locally to you, then you, you need to ship that material to wherever it is, which adds to the testing cost as well. But another challenge I would think is is potentially, and or maybe this is a, a question, but are there is there a difference between how large companies are approaching this, uh, multinational companies versus smaller local companies that maybe aren't involved with the same insurance companies? Then, do you see a pretty big difference in how you know companies of different size or with different owners are approaching combustible dust? Oh yeah, it's 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 a wide spectrum. The MNCs versus uh, what do they call a small and medium enterprise SMEs. Uh, the SMEs uh, typically are insured by local uh, insurance providers versus, you know, uh, uh, the more established uh, companies like, you know, Zurich, uh, AXA, AIG, and so on. So, uh, uh, first of all, I guess there is uh, probably a, a, a delayed transfer of knowledge and, 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 and uh, awareness from the insurance engineers who work for multinational companies uh, versus the insurance engineers that work uh, with the local insurance providers. So uh, that further translates into, you know, uh, the local insurance community educating uh, the SMEs about such such um, exposures and assets and, and so on. And then, you know, you have the, the, the aspect of uh, costing. Um, uh, multinationals probably have a more more access to capital where they can, you know, um, uh, address these kind of issues. And, and most of the time, multinationals are more uh, concerned about their uh, reputation, you know, when it comes to human safety, fire, and, and so on. So they typically take it more seriously or more consciously. Well, you know, on the SME side, funds are usually limited. Uh, even if awareness was created, uh, I guess, the duration before you know you know things get done typically takes longer than than, than it is. Now, saying that I have actually um, been involved in MNCs which um, take advantage of the lack of regulations. So you know a, a very good example I'd share is um, I was at a, at, one, at a plant in in this part of the world and um, they were using um, I guess rated uh, electrical equipment. Uh, you know, basically the class one, division one or class two, division two uh, stuff. And as I investigated further, uh, uh, they said, you know, uh, the equipment was actually uh, brought from their overseas uh, European factory. I guess, you know, uh, as regulations in, uh, evolved in, 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 in the developed world, uh, where they needed to meet certain criteria, guidelines, regulations, they implemented them, but um, uh, the stuff that they couldn't use in their environment, they, they, 
they brought it to Asia where uh, the regulations were not as, as, as stringent and capitalized on, on, on uh, that, those loopholes. So you, you do find a, a mixture of, of uh, organizations out there, some who comply uh, because of reputational risk and some who take advantage of the lack of regulations. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. So we went through a couple of challenges. We talked about testing. We talked about small versus larger companies. Um, you talked about an interesting one on um, certified equipment. Maybe that's acceptable in one or not acceptable for use in one part of the world, then being moved to another part of the world where um, it's not uh, as regulated or the regulations are at a different set level so that then it's acceptable to come out. We have seen in 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 China certainly cases where there's knockoff equipment that are being made, so knockoff explosion protection systems, and then those are sold on the market. That That's uh, an ongoing problem um, that some of the, the explosion protection vendors will, will talk about. Any other sort of challenge that you see in, in Malaysia? And I have another kind of question around this too, but I think we'll, we'll try to flesh out the, what the different challenges are and then maybe we'll, we'll talk about some ways to try to fix them as well. Yeah, sure. So um, I, I think um, the, the challenge now is, I guess, to uh, beyond just you know, creating awareness, it's uh, also trying to make the, the general uh, public which are involved in combustible dust understand that um, uh, it's not just zoning, you know, s- s- stuff like uh, hazardous areas, you know, uh, uh, is, 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 is the solution to everything. Uh, that seems to be the mindset now, you know, that, you know, if I've zoned my area, I'm fine. Uh, I'm, I'm involved in a project now for a, a sugar refinery, and uh, they had actually got a professional uh, engineering consultancy to actually uh, do the zoning for them and identify where they need to use, uh, you know, rated equipment and, and so on. Uh, but, you know, when I say, when I ask them about, you know, stuff like, um, uh, have they done analysis on the venting requirements? Have they done analysis on spot detection, on suppression, on isolation and all that? Uh, they are a bit lost. Uh, they said, well, you know, those were already addressed uh, by the um, uh, equipment supplier, you know, so that's that's not their concern. So uh, the challenge now, it seems like, you know, people who have bought into the awareness of combustible gas feel that, you know, by just uh, eliminating the ignition source, they, uh, they are good to go. So I guess that's, that's one challenge. The other challenges uh, that I find is um, the... Maintenance and testing of, of uh, equipment related to combustible dust uh, seems to be lacking. Uh, people think if they have installed it and, you know, it's good to go for uh, as, as long as, 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 as needed. So that, that's, that's another challenge. I think on one of your podcasts, and I can't remember which podcast, uh, someone talked about, you know, uh, integrity levels of the systems. I think that's that's probably uh, the next challenge where people really don't appreciate the level of integrity of the different uh, protection systems. I guess the appreciation of between uh, passive type protection and active type pro- protection is also something else that you know needs to be uh, further developed. So th- these are actually, in my mind, uh, the uphill task. Um, I mean, since we're past the stage of creating the awareness of combustible dust, how you address them is the next, is the next step. Yeah, and I, I'd always broke it down 
to well, it's the four pillars that we built that safety science on. Um, awareness is like level one. That's the base. You can't do anything without without knowing that you have a hazard. Education and knowledge is the second level. So what what does that mean? And and knowing you know it's not just hazardous area classification and ignition source control. There's other things to consider there. So building up that knowledge, um, connection. So who do I go to? How do I get the proper equipment? Um, how do I get expertise that we don't have? Um, and then actually change. And that change aspect is it's the really highest level. And that goes into social psychology and culture and and all the different aspects of actually doing something different, which is which is hard. Um, there's a famous saying, what got you here won't get you there. And if your facility's at the current level of safety that it is right now, because of what's done, it's it's you won't get to that next level unless you have some sort of change. So I can see we're in and across different countries, even we're walking through these steps at different rates, which makes sense. Um, normally, there's a large incident in that country. It'd be nice if this didn't have to happen, but normally that's what happens. And that starts, okay, well, there's something here that starts to level awareness. And then um, our role is to try to get into the awareness a little bit before that happens, but also provide those resources then for the knowledge, um, connection. Where do I go for getting my dust tested in Malaysia? Well, here's the, the companies that might be local to you um, and and then change. How do we actually get culture and buy-in and commitment and uh, safety dollars, money to, to invest and all that sort of stuff. Um, and on that, I had two things I wanted to kind of chat about before we close this episode off. One was around this kind of change piece, but I think I'll shelve that for a second. because so I, I have a big question mark here um, on the dust hazard analysis piece. I don't know if this is another challenge, but even in, in North America, we have this whole thing around qualified persons and, and how many people are qualified. My my stance has always been really, even even if we draw the line quite broadly on who's qualified or former dust hazard analysis, there's not enough service providers to, even if every facility, and it'd be great if they did, said, yes, we, we need this today or we want this day because the deadline's coming. We don't actually have enough service providers to, to do a DHA in the time that's allotted. Um, is... I'm wondering if that's a challenge in, in Malaysia, just the, the knowledge, the number of people that have the level of knowledge required to actually help support the facilities. We have you out there doing, doing great work, but I mean, you can only do so many DHAs at once, I would think. <laughs> Is that a, a challenge having those, those competent folks and just having enough of them to be able to, to help uh, support the industry? Yeah, uh, de- definitely. That, that, that's a major challenge and, uh, in conducting DHAs. There's no certificate of competency that's you know being you know kind of uh, issued right now for anybody who does this. Um, so the, the, there's a lack of of, of uh, people out there who can do that. But I, in my mind, at least you know, I correct me if I'm wrong. I think in any any geographical area, there's an evolution process, right? When when uh, I guess in the U.S., maybe 20 years back, before before even uh, CTA acoustics losses, when people would, uh, were looking at combustible dust, there was a, probably an elementary level of evaluation. Uh, and then, you know, as people became more aware and more sophisticated, the evaluation process kind of, of uh, uh, improved. Uh, I think, you know, in Southeast Asia, in Malaysia, uh, we're going through the same process. So it's if, if if you're going to draw draw a line on the on the in the sand and say you know if you don't have this you can't do uh, this evaluation uh, we're not going to uh, uh, progress in the right direction 
So I guess uh, the most importantly is uh, if we have people who can actually uh, help create awareness uh, and people who can point uh, others in the right direction, I think, in, at least in my mind, with the resource constraint that we have, is probably a qualified person uh, because he is helping to drive the knowledge and uh, uh, the awareness uh, and the uh, requirements, I guess, towards, towards uh, 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 a better tomorrow. So, so uh, I mean, I've heard this this discussion about you know, qualified person on uh, a couple of your podcasts, and uh, it seems to be a challenge, especially with with the deadlines coming. Uh, but uh, like I said, in my mind, I think a, a lot of people are maybe taking a different uh, perspective than I am. I look at it as and anybody who knows anything about combustible dust is a qualified person now to talk about it and to educate others. Yeah, and I appreciate you sharing that. There, there's no definition written in stone here, so um, it's completely open to interpretation. And usually the interpretation I hear, to be totally honest with most people, is the, the line of competency low, lies just below my level of competency. <laughs> so every everyone that knows less than me is not confident enough, and everyone that knows more is. Um, and that's not helpful. So it is refreshing to hear somebody come in and say, well, you know, the bar, the bar, and my point, and my point always in that is, say it was at the level where, I don't know, where we have a hundred qualified people in the US or even a thousand, that's not enough to do. If I, if I could, if I could get enough awareness so that enough companies were, were asking for DHAs, that's not even enough people to do it. There are, um, I can't even remember the numbers now, 200,000 or something high schools with wood shop dust collectors in the United States. Now, a good question is, does any, every one of those need a DHA? And I don't actually know the answer to that. But if it is, then then we better get busy. <laughs> um, so we're going to have to lower the bar or come up with a training system to train people up um, in order to to do that, that number that's needed. Um, so that's where the base that question comes, but I do appreciate you sharing your thoughts on that uh, level of comms because I do hear that a lot. It's, and I, I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, but it is, it is true. <laughs> everyone I talk to, not everyone. Um, but uh, a lot of the time I will hear this kind of, you know, everyone b- lower than my level of competency is not a qualified person. Everyone above is, and that's just not, uh, not a, not, not a helpful way to think about it. I don't think. <laughs> I mean, it, it, when even before we started doing combustible dust evaluation, uh, when you talk about just doing fire risk assessment, there's a huge. I mean, I've been in this industry for you know 18, 20 years. I've I've seen a vast different range of competency levels between fire protection engineers. Does that mean someone sh- who's you know doesn't have the same level of competency with me shouldn't be doing the job? You know, it comes back to what you said. You know, if it's just a school. What's the big deal, right? Um, if, if it's a sophisticated, uh, integrated uh, plan to be done with, with uh, multiple processes, then then maybe you know uh, you need someone who's a bit more sophisticated. But um, I think there is uh, how do I? What's the right word to use? A, a point of balance for everybody. So you know, uh, if someone's uh, you know more more confident in doing something more challenging. I guess, you know, that's fine. And someone who's less confident in doing something can always do something simpler. So, you know, I guess until things evolve, maybe, you know, the, the Dust Academy can, you know, come up with a competency level, you know, 
level one, you know, uh, for 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 schools and level two for uh, you know uh, storage facilities and you know level three for something else, you know. Uh, you, probably you guys are in a in a better place to come up with some some formalization of of uh, uh, competency levels. Well, and we'll yeah, that will be a, a that's a, a even broader topic of discussion that we'll have to have a separate episode on. I think. So I, I appreciate going through that discussion because it's it's an important one. It's important to have it here in 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 North America and Canada and the United States, but it's also important to be having that across the world. So that's why I appreciate having your input on it. I think the last thing in terms of the challenges I want to touch on is because you are working with companies that are local over there. And and you did mention there is this discrepancy between uh, multinational companies and, you know, smaller local companies that may be insured by, by uh, local insurers. In my mind, I'd really like to, to make both safe if I could. <laughs> so it, do you see any sort of inroads and in ways that, we could improve um, combustible safety for those other companies and start to get buy in there. If you, I, this is a really big question and one that I did not prep you for beforehand. Um, but just, you know, any anything come to mind on on um, ways to improve that with the smaller companies? Because I'm looking at this in Malaysia and Brazil and across, you know, all, all these different countries and trying to collect up these ways of maybe approaching this. I think there's no like one solution fits all. There's going to be, if there's an initiative, it has to be, uh, uh, I guess, from multiple directions. Uh, I guess, you know, uh, when I heard your podcast, the Brazil podcast talked about, you know, uh, the cost of equipment uh, and, you know, equipment wasn't produced locally and, you know, it had to come from overseas uh, and, you know, it, it cost more. So I think cost is a barrier. So if you wanted, you know, organizations to, uh, incorporate uh, safety systems related to combustible dance, uh, it has to be affordable. And to be affordable, I think it needs to be uh, produced locally. And you, you touched a bit about, you know, in China where you get knockoff products. And I think that's probably why the knockoff products are, you know, gaining momentum because, uh, you know, uh, people see it as a, a lower price point. Uh, it may not come with, uh, you know, the UL uh, listing or the FM diamond or whatever, but, you know, they feel, you know, something's better than nothing. So, so that, that's, that's uh, probably one aspect. Uh, the, other, the other aspect is, you know, uh, I guess maybe an opportunity to uh, uh, further educate people about this uh, in a much more broader perspective. Like I talked about the DOSH document that, that you know, was, was released uh, by, by the uh, Malaysian Department of Occupational Health and Safety. Uh, but I, me being in this industry, didn't know that this document was there until I went looking for it. I think maybe, you know, the Department of Health and uh, Occupational Health and Safety should, you know, uh, probably uh, be more proactive in disseminating information like this to people so that that helps uh, also uh, and I think that um, you know okay getting this stuff installed now you need people with expertise to to help maintain them test them and so on so uh, you need to create that pool of, of uh, expertise so there's this uh, multiple uh, aspects that needs to be kind of um, uh, addressed before I think it it would become uh, a solution that would be widely uh, 
acceptable or implemented and so on it's it's like it's like smoke detectors and uh, you know smoke detectors are so uh, i mean you, you you if you didn't see a smoke detector in a factory you know um, uh, there's something really wrong that means you know the client really has a really bad attitude he doesn't care about uh, fire detection so smoke detectors are so uh, widely available so widely understood and you know everybody yeah, you know uh, the minute you tell them you need a smoke detector people you know don't argue with you about it and they get it installed whereas if you talk about sprinklers you know you get a different level of resistance uh, so i think you know it's about um, making things uh, easily accessible uh, reducing the cost and making it easy to maintain all that put together will kind of i guess help change the the mindset and adoption to uh, um, this this changes yeah, I appreciate that. I put a big star beside a couple points there, but the the biggest one was um, reusing the information we already have, and not even reusing it, but just make sure we don't forget the information that we already have. Um, that's that's really critical. And if I had, if I had to give the thirty second summary of how combustible dust has gone in the states, nineteen twenty, the NFPA standard on combustible first NFPA standard on combustible dust was released or in the 1920s, I believe. I had a discussion with Guy Colonna at the, the Digital Safety Conference about this. And I asked him, why Why did that document come out? And I think what he told me, and I'll have to go back and check with Guy. Maybe we'll get him, back on the, get him on the podcast. But I think he said that it was the property insurers got together and their, their equipment kept blowing up. And, and they got together at a table and said, well, we got to figure this out. So that's, that's how... The first MPA standard in 1920s, there about was formed, and then in the 70s we had um, a big, massive grain elevator explosions. Then in the throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there's a lot of research in coal mines because we had a lot of coal mine explosions around the world and and in North America, and even one only only an hour from where I'm at today here in Nova Scotia that were taking massive amounts of lives. And we started to realize that coal dust was the thing that was reacting, not just methane. We couldn't justify why the explosion was propagating three kilometers in the coal mines. A methane cloud can't get that big. Oh, it's picking up the coal dust, and, and that's the fuel. Um, and then, you know, and then the most recent renaissance is on from CTA Acoustics and the Dust Hazard Report by the Chemical Safety Board, followed pretty quickly by Imperial Sugar. Um, and then, you know, we've had this sort of most recent renaissance. But and and you talked about internationally how the insurers are, are really driving it. But if I go all the way back to the start, nineteen twenties. I think it was the insurer, the property insurers that started, you know, started the NFP standards to begin with, and then we we learned and unlearned the lessons. And then grain elevator explosions happened. We learned and unlearned lessons. Coal mine explosions learned and unlearned. It's really about how do we keep it at the forefront of what's available, and then when some of these documents get created and some of this knowledge gets created, how do we stop it from just going into the the abyss <laughs> and and never see the light of day again? So if we could do that, I think. That'd be the quickest way and easiest way to to increase safety and increase knowledge transfer is just making better use of the stuff that we already have. So that's my my rant there, I guess, on a hundred years of combustible dust safety in thirty seconds, <laughs> or more like three minutes, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, yeah, I, mean uh, I totally uh, you know understand where you're coming from. You know, it's it's, it's something that we've been talking for so long, and you know, it still still seems like it's a long way before we. You know, we we reached the the end. We still have to talk about it for another hundred years. 
<laughs> before actually you know it becomes so widely acceptable. Well, when we hit episode one thousand of the podcast, then uh, we'll be right there. And I mean, we're not far off, right? This is eighty nine, so you know it, it won't take. It won't take a lot to get there, so we'll see. Um, Kumar, I, I, I've kept you long enough. You're just getting your day started over there in Malaysia. Um, it's the the end of the day here for us. Uh, my son did cooperate through this whole episode, which is nice, and uh, stayed asleep and not noisy, which is good for these recordings. Um, but I, I do want to say thank you for going through this. Thank you for you know being an active member of the broader combustible dust safety community. Thank you for everything you're doing in, in Malaysia and, and other countries um, in, in Southeast Asia. And it, it really helps to get this perspective of what's going on in other countries, talking about challenges that are going on, talking about successes that are going on, um, because I think these can apply, be applied to other countries. And I'm sure there's other folks like yourself that are listening to this podcast episode and that are in a different country that will find inspiration here. So Thank you for that, and I look forward to uh, to getting an update on how things are going in the countries you're working in um, moving forward. Maybe you'll be episode uh, 889 on the podcast. Now we won't wait that we won't wait that long, but <laughs> it'll be good to get you back on the podcast again in the future. Thank you, thank you for the time, and thank you again for you know giving me this opportunity to uh, share what I can. Thanks, Kumar, and we'll be talking soon. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and Kumar Raja Sigaram. Uh, fire safety and risk consultant for JTS Risk Engineering based out of Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. We were talking about the role of insurance companies in global combustible dust safety. We talked a bit about Kumar's background, really starting within technical industries, but then also his, his roles within, uh, within insurance companies and working with FM Global. We talked through the role that in the, the transition that insurance companies have had with regards to combustible dust. We talked about the uh, CTA acoustics, dust explosion, how FM Global was mentioned in the chemical safety board reports and, and played a role there. Uh, we talked about that Imperial Sugar, and um, I believe there are also insurance companies that were mentioned there as well um, that were inspecting the site beforehand and, and maybe didn't recognize the hazards that were there. So that led to a lot of education being done in insurance companies, and a lot of requirements being done. And I would say a lot of great research, a lot of educational material being put out by these groups as well. Um, FM Global has some of the the leading documents on combustible safety. If you look at their safety, um, not their safety data sheets, um, but they have a whole series of guidelines, which the name's escaping me at the moment, but uh, many of them deal with many different uh, industries, but they have several that are in combustible dust that are very good. So we talked about that. Then we moved on to what the current status is in Malaysia. And, and we were talking about things like dust hazard analysis, things like uh, NFPA 61, testing laboratories, and what are some of these key drivers in combustible dust safety, and then what are some of the challenges? So we talked about small to medium-sized businesses. We talked about testing, availability. We talked about just uh, qualified persons uh, being able to do dust hazard analysis. We talked about SIL and CIS levels, and this uh, Kumar mentioned a uh, previous podcast episode, episode 28, with Timothy Hennix, I believe that I got his name correct. I'm from Duskcon Solutions. That was an excellent episode. And then we talked about some of the, maybe the ways forward, things on education, things on reusing the information we have available and make sure that's more widely distributed. Um, and I hope that this podcast plays a role in doing that. So if you're interested in connecting with Kumar, we'll have his contact information in the show notes at uh, dustsafetyscience.com slash 89 for this episode. Um, I want to say thank you for, for listening. I hope everyone's staying safe out there. I want to say thank you for everything you're doing for industries handling combustible dust around the world, um, being part of the community that we're creating here with the podcast. 